You'll find our scripture this morning from Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28, and also Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. Hear God's word to us this morning. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and all over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In Genesis 2, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But Adam, but for Adam there was no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the Lord said, This then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she is taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The Lord, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. O God, we ask your divine illumination and grace. We ask your spirit of truth and clarity to be with us this morning as we reflect on the mysterious and difficult and chaotic in our culture meaning of male and female. And wherever we find ourselves this morning with respect to our maleness or femaleness, Lord, help us to know that we are only true and complete human beings in you, in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you move towards us in grace wherever we find ourselves, and show us light and truth and mercy. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Have you um, noticed how our presidential election has become a proxy for the battle of the sexes? You have the masculine male who boasts of sexual conquest, and domination, assault really, in the person of Donald Trump. And then you have this, the liberated woman and Hillary Clinton. And as the media has shaped this election, especially in the light of recent, the, 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 the comments of Trump, this is really now uh, an election about the sexes, right? And in Donald Trump, As the sort of masculine male, there's many people that are attracted precisely because he is strong, he is assertive, he's a man, right? And many people, that's precisely why they're repelled by him. 
And in Hillary Clinton here, you have a woman who represents a woman who was able to make it in a man's world, make her way in a man's world, right? And many people, of course, see her to be the apothesis of everything wrong with feminism, right? And this is both male and female. It's not as if all men are lined up for Donald Trump and all women are lined up for Hillary Clinton. Even the sexes, we disagree on how to evaluate this. It's interesting that our whole election cycle in many ways raises this issue of gender, of sex. And into this chaos and confusion and conflict, God's Word speaks to us. In the image of God, He created us. Male and female, He created us. And this is a good thing. This is a dangerous sermon. Um, In many ways, there's a risk of saying too much, and there's a risk of saying too little. And arguably, this is, for me, one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to prepare. Because I know there's so much at stake. Not only is the material incredibly difficult, and the issues of gender and sexuality very complicated in the Scriptures and in our own experience, but there's incredible amount of identity questions at stake, power and authority questions at stake. And so on the one hand, there's a risk of saying too much, and by that saying that to, to sort of say, here's what it means to be a man, and here's what it means to be a woman, and to fill that out. And here's masculinity, and here's femininity. And the danger there is that you end up stereotyping men and women, and what about those men and women that don't fit those categories? And oftentimes when we do this, we're sort of looking backwards to some ideals in history and culture, and we sort of project that into the present. We try to make this timeless ideal, and it's really problematic. On the other hand, the too little, you say too little about the differences between male and female, and you risk undermining the created goodness of two-ness and the givenness of maleness and femaleness. You undermine the reality that men and women inhabit the world differently. I think that's how I would say the difference between two-ness of male and female. We inhabit the world differently. And I think there's a real tension here in the way we think about sex and sexual difference. And I would put the tension this way. It's a tension between stability and freedom. Stability and freedom. There are some of us, and many of you here, who really want a very clearly defined understanding of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And oftentimes, because that provides a certain amount of stability, right, in a culture in which there is no stability, and it just seems like there's chaos, and we can just sort of choose what our sex and gender is, right? And so there's a longing for a kind of stability of how the sexes relate and what my role as a woman, especially women, right, is in the world. And so there is that security, right? And that's, that's a natural human inclination. But on the other hand, we desire freedom too. And we resist saying too much because we think, well, that will lock me down. I don't want to be overly defined. And the reality is, is that gender and all that is very complicated. And I think what you see in the biblical world is, is well, one, you can turn freedom into an idol. And you can turn stability and security into an idol. Recognize that. But what you see, I think, in the biblical picture is a blend of freedom and stability. There is actually something underneath that makes us different, that, that's uneradicable, part of who we are. And yet there is freedom 
There is a sense that, that the expression of gender in culture and history is diverse. And that's not a bad thing. But how do you hold them together? So my honest goal this morning is to make all of you a little bit upset. <laughs> a little bit uncomfortable. But ultimately to provide some clarity and some grace in the conversation as we wrestle with what Scripture says. And so there's, there's three things I want to talk about. The mystery of sexual difference. The meaning of sexual difference and the fulfillment of sexual difference. The mystery, the meaning, and the fulfillment. The mystery of sexual difference. Being created, male and female, is a mysterious aspect of what it means to be created in the image of God. Being created, male and female, is a mysterious aspect of what it means to be created in the image of God. Again, verse uh, 27 from chapter 1. So God created man in his own image... In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Male and female is part of the image. It's sandwiched between it, right? But sexual difference, and here's, here's what's I think important I want to draw out, begin drawing out, is that there is something mysterious about the difference between male and female. It's mysterious for a variety of reasons. But in particular, it's mysterious because we, we have God at the center in a sense, that somehow God is a part of this sort of interactive male-female dynamic in the image of God. But I, I want to draw your attention just to something that even this week I discovered for the first time in reflecting and studying these texts, which is in these first two chapters, sexual difference is communicated via poetry. It's poetic. The first one, in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. There's cadence, there's poetry there. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 23, when Adam, when the man first meets the woman, the first words out of his mouth is poetry. The first poem, the first words, right? This, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. See, there's mystery here, friends. This is not, mystery is not like, is not my way of avoiding talking about the differences, to be clear, right? It could be a way of sort of getting around having to say something. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there really is mystery around the differences. Another verse for you from Proverbs 30. There are three things too wonderful for me. A four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a serpent on a rock. The way of a ship on the high seas. And the way of, with a, of, a, of a man with a virgin. Now, heaven and earth, land and sea, man and woman. That's what the, the, the writer, the writer of, uh, uh, <coughs> of the Proverbs here has. All of heaven and earth and the land, and most mysteriously, though, is the relationship of male and female. Paul himself, again, and Ephesians 5, after he talks about the relationships of man and woman in marriage and how this mirrors Christ, he says, this is a profound mystery. This is a profound mystery. And I'm also talking about Christ and the church. See, there's something mysterious about the relationship between male and female that points us beyond simply that reality to how God himself relates to us. And so let me reflect on a number of, I think, principles or realities that we can learn from in particular, the, the statement about being created in the image of God. The first is this. Sexual difference. 
sexual identity as male and female is ordained by God and it is grounded in creation and it is good. It is good. Look back at chapter 1 where it says male and female he created them and then God blessed them. Blessing. God blesses sexual difference. God blesses sexual difference. It's good. It's not a consequence of the fall. It's not a bad thing. But two, that sexual identity as male and female is essential to your humanity. Now, I'm using this word sexual identity. I'm I'm avoiding the word gender because gender is a complicated word. We often distinguish in our culture, and this is a helpful distinction, but often it's too binary between sex and gender. We want to say, my sex is male. My sex is that I have a certain anatomy, but my gender, will that's fluid. And we tend to want to almost hold these completely apart. And I, I don't think that you can do that. If we take seriously what the Bible says about having a body, right? And by sexual identity, though, I'm saying is that your sex, right? Your maleness, your femaleness is grounded in your body. It's not a grounded in God. It's not grounded in a kind of platonic ideal beyond the created world or in the heavens called maleness and femaleness and that tapping into it, you'll find your true self. No, your maleness and your femaleness is grounded in your body, but you are your body. Your body is your real self. To be embodied sexually is central to who you are. It is essential to what it means to be a human being, to be sexed. And again, this is the sixth sermon on what it means to be an image bearer of God. And I've said a number of other things about what is essential to your humanity. I've talked about how there's this original relationship with God, that you are created for God and created for relation with God, and this is an essential aspect of what it means to be human. I've talked about fruitfulness in the image of God, that this is a central part of your humanity. I've talked about power and authority, and that expressing itself in your life and positive good things as a central part of being a humanity, especially over against the rest of creation. I've talked about your body. Your body is the basis for the image of God. Your body is not something, you know, sort of separated from it. And likewise, your sex. Your experience of your sexual identity flows from your body, and that's a significant thing. But the other thing you see in this text, too, is between the sexes is what you see is mutuality. Mutuality. Look, again, in the image of God... They're created, male and female, they are created. And here we get to verse 28. God blessed them, and then God said to them, and this is what's called the cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and the heavens and everything living that moves. See, the command to be fruitful and multiply is given to the male and female. It is not just given to... See, this is already... we, we we tend to think of the female principle as the fruitfulness principle, right? And the male principle as the power, authority, dominion principle. But what you see here is that actually both are given both, right? It's together. It's cooperative. It's mutual, right? What you don't see here is hierarchy. You see no subordination in Genesis 1 of male or female to male or the other way around. I know certain some... Christians, they make this argument based on chapter 2, and I can't get into that, but I don't think those arguments hold. What you see here is mutuality, reciprocity between the sexes. You don't need hierarchy. 
This is key. You do not need gender hierarchy to ensure gender difference. That is an assumption that a lot of Christians believe you need. And, I, and I'm sympathetic in the sense that what they want to do is secure difference in two-ness, but they think the only way they can do it is by hierarchy. And again, these are not uncomplicated issues. So you see mutuality, but what you see also is interdependence. Male and female are definable only in relation to one another. You do not see, you can't, see it's not as if you can watch a woman or a man doing man things or woman things apart from one another and, and derive an understanding of masculinity and femininity from that. I mean, in the scriptures, you never actually see, here, in our text, you, you only see the inter, you see interdependence. And actually, a text, a strange, difficult text that, of, of Paul's in 1 Corinthians 11, he says it this way, he says, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of a man, and a man is not independent of a woman. Right, so, so Eve comes from a man, but then all the rest of men come from women. Think about this, right? Jesus was born of a woman. He is a man who came from a woman. See, there's interdependence here. You cannot define the meaning of gender or, or, or sexuality apart from the interactivity of the man and the woman together. This is, I think, a very important principle. Okay, what does this mean? To be clear, to be male and female, to repeat what I said earlier, is to inhabit the world differently. It is. To even say this, I know, is controversial for some people. It is to be oriented and to inhabit the world differently. But, as Christians, we have to exercise modesty and caution when it comes to talking about what those differences are. Because here's the thing, you do not get a sense. You, I mean, the million-dollar question is this. We recognize the difference between the sexes. What's the content, though? What's the content of the difference? Do women just do certain women things and men do certain men things? What's the content of the difference? It's difficult beyond childbirth, right, and our respective roles in that, but what is the difference? And what you don't see in Genesis 1, 2, 1 and 2 is you don't actually see any content because you only see the, male and the, the man and the woman together. There's no positive content. You know, just to take as an example... Oftentimes, um, people talk about receptivity as a mark of femininity. That, that to be a woman is to be uniquely receptive, right? And the opposite, of course, is that the man is uh, assertive, um, leader, uh, you know, like it's the opposite of receptivity, right? But this starts to break down. I mean, already in chapter 2. Because here you have Adam, and he... God brings all the animals to him, and there's none that fit. And then it says, God makes a suitable helper for him. Azer, helper. It's not a lackey. It's actually used of God. It's one who provides something for somebody who lacks something. So here you have Adam, who lacks something, and the woman is created to give him something. She's providing something. So she's not the one receiving. Adam's the one receiving. When Adam sees Eve, or the woman... What does he say? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She was taken on me. He receives her. He recognizes and receives her. See, the idea of that, that somehow you can turn... See, receptivity is not something uniquely feminine. It's human, right? And now it's true now that as male and female, we experience receptivity differently. But you can't take receptivity and say, this is what it means to be a woman. And to fulfill that ideal, right? That's really problematic. And what you see in the Bible... 
is you see diversity of gender expression throughout the Bible. Diversity. You see, just like culture is diverse in expression, you see assertive women that are praised, and you see submissive men that are praised. Just a few examples. King David submits to Saul. He could have killed him a number of times, and he had the right as a man to do it. And not to do that, many of his the warriors are like, why don't you just kill this guy? He doesn't. He submits. Why? Because he, he knows that this is what God wants him to do. Zephorah, the wife of Moses. God is about to strike Moses dead because he has not circumcised his son. Zephorah, his wife, quick thinking, circumcises his son, takes the bloody foreskin and touches the foot of Moses and saves her husband's life. Rahab, Canaanite woman, provides shelter and protection for two spies, two male spies. Deborah, Judas, Jael. Jael is an old woman who takes a tent, st- a tent stake and drives it through the skull of a wicked king and saves Israel. You have women providing for Jesus. You have Mary, of course, right? Who, in the Magnificat, right, or in that, that moment where, where the Annunciation, where she says, let it be, right? Have your way with me, Lord. I will receive, becomes, in a sense, a model of receptivity of what it means to have faith, because to have faith is to be receptive to God, to submit. And there's something about her being a woman in in pregnancy and receiving new life that becomes a powerful metaphor, not just for women, but for men, such that to be a true man is to become like Mary, in a certain sense. But then you look at Jesus, who goes to the cross, who... (laughs) Peter, of course, pulls out his sword in the garden. He is going to fight to the death. We're going to win this battle, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? No. My kingdom isn't come with the sword. It's not manly man strength that makes you a man. And Jesus suffers passively like a woman on the cross and saves us. See, these ideas of sort of masculine, I mean, the, the scripture scrambles this. And, and, and please hear me clearly, to, to understand this is not to say that Tunis doesn't matter or that there's not real difference. What I'm saying is it's actually pretty hard to talk about it with much intelligence. And I think the takeaway here is this, is that I think there's a lot of danger around gender-based spiritualities. There's a lot of danger around gender-based spiritualities. And I get it. I understand why there is an attraction to want to talk about manhood and womanhood and fulfilling manhood and womanhood. In part, it's because our culture has completely erased tunis from its, from its midst. And so we feel like we have to, in a sense, retrieve it with a vengeance. And that's what's happening in many ways in tra- more traditional conservative cultures. We're doubling down. But there's, I think, real danger in gender-based spirituality because, listen, you cannot take, you can't look at anything in Scripture and extract a spiritual principle that you can apply timelessly. Even, and in, 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 now many of you are thinking, okay, what about all those passages in Paul where he talks about relationship between men and women and the family and the church? Those are important passages. I will deal with those passages. But here's, a, here's an observation about those passages. Those passages, when Paul talks, he does talk about the responsibilities and roles between men and women in marriage and in the church and in family. 
And what's at stake, the ultimate stake of these is unity and harmony in these bodies. But when you read those texts, even, even, even Ephesians 5, what you can't do very easily is extract principles of femininity and masculinity that you can apply broadly in society. There is an openness, actually, about what does it mean for, to submit and to sacrifice in marriage. The, the broader point is the harmony and mutuality and the oneness in marriage and in the church. Friends, the Bible does not call you to masculinity and femininity. It calls you to Christ-likeness. The Bible does not call you to true masculinity or true femininity. It calls you to Christ-likeness. If you want to be a real man, if you want to be a real woman, become like Christ. And he will make you a real man. And he will make you a real woman. And this will not eradicate your, gender, or your, 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 your sexual difference. It will make you truly a man and truly a woman. So we can err in the direction of too much content, but we can also err in the opposite direction by dismissing altogether the difference between the sexes. And this is the second part of my sermon. I'm probably going to go a little long today. I apologize. (laughs) The meaning of sexual difference. The two-ness of sexes is central to how God decided to image himself in the world. And the meaning of this two-ness is manifested in particular. And what we see in our text is in two things. Fruitfulness and bonding. Fruitfulness and bonding. Why? The question I'm trying to answer here is why two? Why isn't one of the same enough? Why two? Two different ones. And the first, one, the first point is this, is that, that it's God blesses sexual difference because sexual difference is the basis, the foundation of family, history, and culture. Sexual difference is the basis and foundation of family, history, and culture. This is going back to what I, three weeks ago I talked about, the image of God and fruitfulness. I'm not going to go depth into it, but I want to read a verse to you that reaffirms. This is in chapter 5 of Genesis. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And from there, it goes into a detailed genealogy all the way to the time of Moses. Now, consider male and female and its fruitfulness becomes the foundation for human society and history. The very possibility of history itself, of culture itself, comes out of the blessedness of the difference of the two coming together. Don't, I mean, see, we underestimate what it means to have children sometimes. We have such a low view of having children in our culture. I mean, they're a hassle, right? Why do we need them? But when you have children, what you're doing is you're a culture maker, You're creating not just new life biologically, you're creating new spiritual life. You're creating people who will go into the world and have dominion and authority and power. And your job as a parent or as a friend in the church, a spiritual brother or sister, is to help shape that child in the image of God that goes out into the world. See, the very possibility of history itself is found in the blessedness of this difference. Our society has systematically disconnected sexuality from fruitfulness. That's what we've done. 
Sexuality is something I do for my pleasure or my self-fulfillment. It is not something I do to be generative of new life. But that's what love is. Love is generative. True love is generative. It creates new things. It's creative. Without an affirmation of the goodness of two-ness, the world becomes increasingly hostile to receiving new life. Without an affirmation of the goodness of two-ness, male and female, the world becomes increasingly hostile to receiving new life. But this, this idea of two-ness is not exhausted. Your sexuality is not exhausted by the procreative mandate, if you will. In other words, sex is not defined completely by having children. That is very important to see. There is, this is the second point, complementary bonding that takes place between male and female. And here's where we get deeper into the mystery, and I'll try not to be too obscure. And I'll come back next week and I'll sort of unfold some of these ideas a little bit. But we encounter this idea of this complementarity. That, that the man and the woman are complementary. And what that means, to say that we're, this again, there's a lot of confusion around this word complementary. Something that is complementary, that is complementary, you find similarity in difference. It's not all difference or otherness. And it's not all similarity. It's similarity in difference. So again, Adam, the man sees the woman. Bone of my bone, right? Flesh of my flesh. There is, this, this is, she was taken out of me. So you have otherness and oneness, right? And intimacy. In the encounter of male and female, that where God says there's not a suitable helper for me or a fit helper, that's the, in the Hebrew, you might translate it as um, there's not one that is um, the opposite me, right? One who is, who is like me but not me. And those of you who are married know that your spouse often is, I mean, they are you, but they're not you. They're the, not, they're, they're the, the me that's not the me. There's this, there's this kind of profound mystery that there's this deep, deep difference in orientation in the world. This person is me, but they're not me. And see, here's the mystery, is that it's, it's this precise unity and difference which becomes the unique basis for this intimate communion. And this principle of complementary is not just something you see with the man and the woman. It's actually something you see from the very beginning. And N.T. Wright, in his essay, I have copies out there called What is Marriage For? He makes this brilliant observation. And I'm just going to summarize it. But he says this. God is always... What you see from the beginning, when God's creating, you have this, this world of... It says the earth was formless and void, right? There's chaos. What he does, he begins, he begins separating bodies. He's separating bodies. He's separating the heavens and the earth. He's separating the dry land from the sea. He's separating plant life and animal life. He's separating things that fly in the air and things that are on the ground. And then eventually he's separating male and female. But, but it's not just separation, because there's separation that then brings them back together and complementary sort of unity, right? It's heavens and earth, right? We sing this in so many of our songs. The heavens and the earth declare your glory. There's like a chorus, right? It's a back and forth. One person sings this, another person sings this, and there's difference and there's harmony, right? And you see this throughout creation. It's layered throughout creation, this idea of complementarity, similarity and difference, Similarity and difference. And part of the brilliance and beauty of God's creation is that 
that diverse and unlike things are made to unite and create this dynamic whole that generates new and beautiful things in the world. And that the man and the woman in Genesis 2 is the climax of it all. So your bodies, as I said a couple weeks ago, or last week, is your body, your body is built for relationship. Your body is built for relationship. It's, I mean, there's a way that they fit together, not to be too crass, right? I mean, there's a, there's a fitting together of our bodies that's built into the very anatomy and materiality of who we are, that, that relation, and the point is, is not just procreative in Genesis 2, it's actually there's this bonding, this, this oneness and relationship that comes about by these two coming together. There's a lot more I could say here, and I'll, I'll come back to some of this next week. But I do want to just highlight that one of the things we see here, and I think it's so important in our cultural context, that is obsessed with diversity. We love diversity, and yet we do not like this diversity. Think about that. I like what a, um, a woman, Helen Alvara, said, that what you see in the male-female relationship is the affirmation of diversity that coexists along perfect equality. The affirmation of diversity that coexists next to perfect equality. Think about this. How do you do that? <laughs> that's what marriage, that's what the relationship of male and female, that there's otherness is at the heart of this. Okay, I'm going to come back to this next week. Let me summarize this last point. Tim Keller says, puts it this way, male and female have a unique and non-interchangeable glories. Male and female have unique and non-interchangeable glories. They each see and do things that the other cannot. Sex was created by God to be a way to mingle these strengths and glories within a lifelong covenant of marriage. Marriage is the most intense, though not the only, place where the union of male and female takes place in human life. And male and female reshape and learn from and work together. I know that saying this is a really hard thing to say and affirm in our culture. And we're incredibly resistant and hostile to say this. And I get the reasons why. And that's why I can't cut this sermon short. I get the reasons why. What happens if you're not married? What does that say about you being able to fulfill your sexual difference in the world, especially as it's defined over against another? What happens when you are not, as hard as you might try, attracted to the opposite sex? You can... You just, you struggle with that. Well, what happens if you're a person, or what we call general dysphoria, where you, you have a sex, but you, you do not identify with that? And it's incredibly painful. How do you do this? What does it mean to fulfill our created, embodied sexuality with these realities that stare us in the face? And I, I just, he, this is the second point I want to say, is that it's the fulfillment of sexual difference and sexual, sexual difference in our lives. Friends, we, we live in a world that's fallen. Sexual difference, gender, it's fallen. It's confused, it's mixed up, it's broken. We don't actually know how it's supposed to relate. We have no pictures. I mean, the picture we get in Genesis 1 and 2 is very, very slim. And that's not to say we become agnostic about it, but you go to chapter 3 of Genesis where God has handed out curses, and you hear this curse, and it is, it is defined human history, and it's playing itself out in our eyes right now. 
God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This is not a statement of how things are meant to be. What this is predicting is the fact that there will be conflict and there will be violence and there will be struggle between the sexes. This is part of the curse. And the reason these questions of sexuality are so hard for us to talk about is because they get at the root of identity questions. They get at the root of identity questions. Because maybe most men here don't think in terms of what does it mean to become a real man, right? But oftentimes, right, you know, what does it mean to make, like we're often thinking, right, how do I, you know, what, how do I find meaning and significance in my life as a man, right? And if I stay at home with the kids and I don't work full time, is that me being emasculated? Or as a woman, for you to go to work and to manage being a mother and going to work full time, does that mean you are less feminine? Or if you are a woman who stays home with your kids, are you made to feel that because you don't have a career and a job that somehow you're not as significant as a, as a liberated woman? See, these are all the questions, right? Or maybe you're a man or a woman that doesn't express gender expression your, your sex and the gender expressions that, that kind of map onto man and woman as our culture has defined it. These are the things. That are, and what I want you to see, and I, I keep bringing you back to this text, and just don't forget it, what Jesus says about marriage and what he says about eunuchs and how he, re, he redefines things for us. He, he absolutely affirms the creative goodness of male and female in marriage as the ordinary path that most humans take. But what Jesus does, he says, there are eunuchs in the kingdom of heaven. And what is a eunuch? A eunuch is one who cannot perform sexually because they've been unnaturally cut. Either born that way, as Jesus says, which means like intersex, or perhaps forced by men, they've been maimed, or they've made the choice to to embrace a life of singleness and celibacy for the kingdom of heaven. And I want to think it's so interesting because the eunuch was the outcast. The eunuch was one who was outside, the, outside of worship, couldn't enter into the temple and hear Jesus. Not only is he including the eunuch, he is, in a sense, a eunuch. And you think about being a eunuch, especially if you're physiologically a eunuch or you've been forced to be one. Do you think your gender expression, are you going to be a little feminine, perhaps? Right? Don't fit in to being a man. You have to... See, here you are, what Jesus is saying, he's throwing it open. See, you, your identity as a human person, as a man or woman, is not located in your ability to express masculinity or femininity in a specific way. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ. Faith in him. Which also means that you have, Jesus redefines the very meaning of family itself. He doesn't break the natural family up, but he reinscribes it. It says, the church is a family. And so, if you are single, there is still the possibility in your life, if you so choose, and if the church is so faithful, to be a mother and a father, to be a brother and a sister, to come into intimate, bonding relationships with the opposite sex, to have a family. And in fact, Jesus says that the real family is the church. That's the first family. Your, your natural family is second family. Of course, we don't practice this. This is why there's no place for people who, to belong. But here, even the idea of fruitfulness itself. What makes you fruitful in life, friends, as a Christian? Is it your ability to have children? Now, having children, as I've said, is a glorious thing that we should never look down on. We should pursue it. But you have no commands to have children. 
in the New Testament. That's assumed, but you're commanded to walk in the Spirit and to demonstrate in your life the fruit of the Spirit, right? So you want to know where real fruitfulness is? It's what we were talking about throughout the spring and summer. It's embodying the virtues. If your life embodies love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, your life will be fruitful. See, fruitfulness, it's fruitfulness in the kingdom, friends. And this is not antithetical or in competition with natural fruitfulness in life. Let me close. You cannot build an identity on masculinity or femininity or sexual orientation or your rebellion against these things. This will be your ruin if you do this. It will be enslaving and it will be unstable. The only secure and satisfying place, the only place that actually will help you become a real man or a real woman is to build your identity on Jesus Christ. Your worth, your significance, your security in life, friends, is in Jesus. (laughs) It is not union with your husband or with a man. It is not That is not ultimately your identity. If you build your life on your your marriage, you'll ruin your marriage most likely and yourself. Your union is with Jesus Christ. Your identity and your worth is union with Christ and Christ alone. And it's only by becoming like Christ and being in Christ that you will ever become a real man and a real woman. Let's pray. Father, we... uh, we pray you teach us what it means to be in Christ, that you reorder our hearts and our imaginations around being men and women in fellowship and relationship with one another, whether it be in marriage or in the church or in society. God, there's so much confusion and there's incredible pain in our culture around these issues. We pray that as a church that we could model grace and stability and clarity And to recognize, just as that woman who came to you, Lord, as a sexual sinner, she touched you. She didn't just touch you. She she lavished physical love, holy physical love on you, and you received it because of your forgiveness. And you do the same for us, Lord. And so wherever we find ourselves or are struck by this sermon, help us to know that you are the God in Jesus Christ that cleanses and heals and embraces us, not just in spirit, but in body. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.